Welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Blanc. Very excited that you're here to learn about financial freedom with real estate. What we're going to talk about, we have a fantastic guest today, Keith Weinhold with Get Rich Education. And we recorded this intro after this call. And let me tell you, wow, the stuff he shares on this thing from mindset to tactics to strategy to long-term outlook was amazing. Before we get into it, I want to bring on my co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? Michael, I'm back. Yes, you are back. Yes, you are back. So I know, I know you are. So we closed two deals late in the in the in the year, um, and so we said, okay, well, let's let the dust settle. Let's get wrap our head around this thing. And then I know late last year you started looking for deals. And you know, when you start looking for deals, it's not like you know you're analyzing a deal a week. It's like you're pounding it pretty hard. Yeah. And so we already uncovered some some good opportunity. But one of the things that's relatively new, maybe three or so, four, maybe even because it's a new year, is is debt. The debt is stowing up. What's going on in the debt world right now? Because that's really interesting. Yeah. So this is a really good topic, I think, because it's changed so much from last year, even into, into now. What we're starting to see is last year we had like no bridge debt at all that existed or right. very few people, or if, if it did exist, it was very unattractive. It went so away like overnight. <clears throat> it was amazing. Yeah. It was just, it's just gone. So, <laughs> so now, so that like obviously changes some things and what you're, how you're looking for deals, what you're, what you're trying to find and put on your contract and a lot of your game plan. Cause the biggest, one of the biggest components of getting into a deal is paying attention to, to the debt. That's such a large part of the capital stack. And so the bridge debt market opened back up fairly recently, and we're getting some attractive stuff coming in. So mm. I've had a few quotes come in right now, and we're looking up like it's not quite as attractive as it was pre-pandemic, but we're able to get 75% LTC, which is pretty good. I think before it went up to eight, it was up to 80. So you got 75%, so they'll cover some capex, they'll cover some of your soft costs. They're going to cover uh, you know up to 75% leverage on there. And then uh, you're getting interest rates in the low to high fours typically, which is which is actually really good uh, for bridge debt. And, and then of course, full-term IO or the three years IO on that stuff. And so we're seeing bridge lenders, especially on the larger debt pieces, starting to become competitive again. And new, there's new products and actually new firms that are coming on the market. Last year wiped out a bunch of existing originators, which is which is kind of nuts. Like even one that we have alone with, they're gone. And there's new ones popping and they're they're willing to, to lend and be competitive. So that's pretty cool. I think debt is, is debt is the one that's there's a short window right now where if you use the right debt, you can actually pay more and you can be more competitive because of that. Because if you're not financing, let's say, part of the construction, your soft cost, like you just said, then you can't pay as much because you have to raise more equity. And that's kind of what we've had to do because there was no alternative. And so because of some of the relationships that we have with lenders, we have now have access to some of this, some of this newer debt. So therefore, we can be a little more competitive. I think the debt is very important. The other thing that's important that uh, that you mentioned is thinking thinking with the exit in mind. And and many years ago, we're like, yeah, let's lock in a twelve year interest on you know loan, like lock it in, you know, and rip the knob off, you know. And then right. we're like, well, well, this is a great environment. I might want to sell. Nah, you can't sell because you have like a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar prepayment penalty. We're like, no, you know. So so we're looking, we're paying a lot of attention to the exit now. The operation doesn't always go 100% as planned. And then what? So you just locked yourself in. There's an inherent risk 
on staying into fixed rate debt. Maybe you've evolved. Maybe you're like your business evolved. Four years later, you're not the same person you are today. And maybe you have other goals. And so part of it is that you can, or you get a crazy offer and you're like, I want to get out of this thing and make all my investors happy. You want to have that ability. And so we pay a lot of attention to that, at least, you know, with the deals that we do, because I think that's important. And you'll see it over and over again, that some deals you want to hold on to forever. And some you're like, you know what, it's, it's the right time to get out and you want to have that ability. All right, let's turn to our, our guest, Keith Weinhold with Get Rich Education, a very popular podcast author. And uh, he was on a show a, a long while ago, and I was like, daggone it, it's been a while to pick his brain. And that's what Garrett and I did on this uh, on the show. We talk about mindset issues. Why don't more people simply get involved in real estate? It seems to be a no-brainer. Why, what's holding people back? We're talking about the long-term outlook, some of the strategies that, that Keith uh, really likes in, in real estate, and a bunch of other wisdom. Uh, it was just awesome that he packed in, and he's just a great teacher. So let's get right into the show with Keith Weinhold. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Hey, Keith, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Michael and Garrett. You know, you have such a wonderful podcast, Get Rich Education. It's uh, really enjoy. You have a, uh, you really look at the entire breadth of wealth creation, things like that. And I, I just wanted to have you on to give us a larger perspective. Sometimes we get mired in our multifamily niche a little bit, and sometimes it's good to get the head out of that, you know where and look up a little bit. So I wanted to have you on to give a little broader perspective. Give us a little background on, on yourself because you have a really interesting background. I know this that you house hacked a you know a, a, a quad, and I love that. There's a lot of people to house hack. Uh, just give us a, a brief journey because we've had you on before, but it's been a little while. So catch us up a little bit. Yeah, briefly, I think anyone listening is looking to live an extraordinary life through real estate. You need to make extraordinary decisions. I think it's good to have a healthy fear of normal. Do those things that make people in your peer group say, you're doing what? For example, more than 15 years ago, I moved from Pennsylvania to Anchorage, Alaska, something that I dreamed about doing because I like skiing and mountaineering. Shortly after settling in Anchorage, I made my first ever home a fourplex building where I lived in one unit and rented out the other three, which is actually something very actionable for the apartment building investing show here, because you can do that with just a three and a half percent down payment. As long as you live in one of the four units for at least 12 months, your minimum credit score only needs to be 580. But again, that was something that made people say, you're doing what? In 2014, I launched the Get Rich Education podcast. Most people didn't even know what a podcast was then. I quit my day job about that time. So pretty fairly young to be doing something like that. If you want to have an outsized life, you need to make outsized decisions. And Mark Twain actually has a great quote around this, Michael. You know what Mark Twain said? Mark Twain said, go out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really so good. good. That's so good because everyone on the you know not in the limb already picked the fruit off. So I love that. <laughs> you know, one, one thing one thing I love about a lot of the things that you do in your in your book and your podcast is you you talk a lot about mindset issues. Now, for the longest time, you know, I thought the mindset thing was a bunch of frou frou, right? It's really about work ethic, right? Taking action. Yep, and it gets that I've, rep. You know, I've I've come to learn that that's not the case. In fact, Robert Kiyosaki, who you know, you know well, he talks about this be do have idea, right? So if you want to have something, you've got to do something. And everybody in America gets that. Yeah, yeah, of course. But then there's this be that precedes the do. You know, like, whoa, 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 whoa I, I'm, not, I'm out. I don't know what that means. Why do you talk so much? Why do you think mindset is so important before even taking any kind of action whatsoever? 
Well, I think a lot of it, when we approach finance, it really comes down to, and this is actually a core Rich Dad saying, and I wrote for the Rich Dad Advisors for two years myself, don't live below your means, expand your means. That's like a mantra for life, if you think about it. Why would you spend your life cutting back, reducing your quality of life when it comes to finances and you're looking at your personal income and your personal expenses? You know, the old conventional wisdom is budget and cut back your expenses and live a diminished quality of life. But you soon learn you can instead expand your means because there's no limit to the income that you can create. You might only be able to have one job or maybe two jobs at most. But you know what the good news is? You can own as many apartment buildings as you want to. You can own as many vending machines as you want to. You can own as many rental single family homes as you possibly want to. And you're improving your quality of life all the while. Yeah. But so when you said you made the big decision where people kind of look at you, kind of you're kind of crazy. What preceded that crazy decision to go to Alaska? Because Pennsylvania, look, I didn't live that far from there. It's a beautiful state. There's no question. Now, you don't, have, you don't have humongous mountains to go skiing on, perhaps. But what preceded that decision to do that in your case? If you don't go after what you want, you'll never have it. That is so simple, but a lot of people don't live it. And in real estate investing, a popular mantra is even live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense. Okay, you've probably heard that before, you, the listener here, but are you actually doing it? Yeah, there's no question. But, but you know, I mean, think back to this decision. I, I remember when I downsized my house, it was one of the most painful experiences I've ever done <laughs> because the pressure from everyone around you was so high. The sense of confusion by the friends that look at you, why are you doing that? They don't, they don't understand. I mean, you're moving away. How long did you live in Pennsylvania? Uh, all my life until about 15 yeah. years ago. So I've lived more of my life in Pennsylvania than Alaska. So the force leaving you in status quo is often stronger then the force pulling you in a new direction. How did you overcome that, that force? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I knew this is what made me happy. Uh, Anchorage, Alaska just felt like that's where my future was. I came from a town in Appalachia where the economy was in a down drain, and there just really wasn't a future for me there in upstate Pennsylvania. My parents still live there. It's still a great place to visit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and 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 I'm sure well, you enjoy it there now. Otherwise, you would still be there as, as well. But I got to believe sometimes these decisions we make are really difficult at the time. And I think we got to shine a light on that. Uh, or was it really easy for you? Was it like a no brainer? It was a no brainer. This is really where things were pulling me in the direction that life was was taking me in. Uh, you got to live where you want to live and let other things figure themselves out. You know, a lot of people go through life following money. Oftentimes they relocate for economic reasons. You know, it's common for you to talk to people, run into people. Why do you live in Joplin, Missouri? Why do you live in Schaumburg, Illinois? Why do you live in Valdosta, Georgia? Oh, well, I got a job here. I'm not really very passionate about living here. But instead, as the real estate investor, you can flip that around and make passive income streams follow you. So that's really the mindset. Don't follow money. Make money follow you. Make your life what you want to make it. Keith, why do you think people, so many people just settle and they don't go into that next, that next step into what, exactly what you're talking about? Because that's the easy thing to do. And they've created this context and this peer group around them that reinforces doing the safe thing. You've probably heard the Jim Rohn quote, you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So shortly after moving to Anchorage, for example, I had two friends that had bought fourplex buildings. Well, I knew if Chris and Raj could do it, 
I could do it. It goes back to the old late business philosopher, Jim Rohn. You are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. The way you dress is probably about the average of the way your five closest friends dress, your income level, your values, your educational attainment level, and all of those things. So if you want to change yourself, change your five. So would you say that that's kind of like the first step, if you will, to getting into that kind of realm? Or do you you have anything else that you could share with the listeners about about taking that leap? I think it's about the cash flow. That's what it comes down to. When a lot of people think about creating their life and creating their investing life, they always think about saving for the future and all that. And you can really only start to improve your quality of life dramatically today with those income streams. Right. But what comes first? We're back to the chicken and egg problem, right? Is your mindset come first or the cash flow, right? Because you can argue, well, shoot, if I have the cash flow, and I'm basically, you know, covering my living expenses, I can really do anything at all. And that, and it becomes easy. However, doing something to try to get the cash flow, which often means doing something like budgeting or downsizing or moving or quitting your job or taking a class or doing something that's uncomfortable, right? So, I mean, or, or even getting, I think it's, I mean, here's my theory, Keith. I think clarity is what's required before you can make any kind of decisions or, or taking action. I think clarity, and I think the issue that most of us have, and I had until I was in my mid-30s, we drift through life. We just drift through life without any intent. You mentioned, oh, people just go, why are you here? Why are you here? Oh, because I got a job offer here. Yeah, but were you ever? did you ever think about what that is? Did you actually want to move to Alpharetta, Georgia? Did you actually ever want to do this? Where's that going to gonna take, right? I mean, I think it's clarity, and a lack of intentionality that that affects, and I was affected for the majority of my life. You bring up this word clarity, and that's great. It's so difficult for people to get clear. I think really most 50 and 60-year-olds don't really know what they want out of life. They're still figuring it out. And it comes to even something more core maybe than clarity in one's life. It's actually honesty. It's actually unvarnished honesty. For example, a lot of people, when they think about financial betterment, what, what do they say? What's the most common thing you hear people say? I want to be frugal, live below your means, be frugal. You might want to be frugal with your time, but certainly not your money because you can never create more of that time. So people that say, I want to be frugal, they don't actually want to be frugal and skip out on going out on a dinner and skip out on the rafting trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. What people really want to say is I want to live well. They don't really want to say I want to be frugal, but they don't know about a vehicle for living well, like real estate investing. That's what makes a difference. Yeah, we talk about this middle class thinking. I heard you talk about it as well. Is that kind of what uh, what that is? That middle class thinking? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up middle class thinking. I have a lot of energy around this topic. So, Michael and Garrett, what do most people do, or a lot of people do? The majority of Americans they work for money, and they really don't have much left over to invest. But middle class people, they might work an office job or something like that. They work, they have some money left over that they put in something like a 401k plan. And what does a middle class person think? They think, hey, now this is great. I'm getting some of my money to work for me. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not enough. You're not going to live an outsized life and get financial freedom to buy the time to live the life you want to live and do the things you want to do. In fact, don't make the focus of investing getting your money to work for you. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, what? What are you talking about? It's that paradigm shift. 
You become wealthier when you ethically employ other people's money. Uh, again, that comes from the Ritzdad School of Thought, really. And you might think, yeah, I've heard that before, other people's money. But do you realize that as a real estate investor, even starting out like I did with that fourplex building, you actually have the ability to use other people's money ethically three ways at the same time when you provide them with good, clean housing. You use the tenant's money for the income stream, the bank's money for the leverage and the loan. I borrowed 96.5% of the value of that fourplex building. And then thirdly, using the government's money at scale. So you're actually using other people's money three ways at the same time. And the interesting thing about this is you don't need any degree at all in order to do this. You don't need any certification. You don't need a real estate license, but that's really the lesson in the mindset shift. Don't just get your money to work for you, get other people's money to work for you. That's what you've got to do. Otherwise, you just don't get by. You can't even live a good retirement. Seven out of 10 401k participants can't retire as early as they thought they wanted to because they banked on compound interest, which is largely farcical rather than a powerful wealth building force like leverage. But here's the big question, Keith, right? Because you have thousands of people on your podcast. You're preaching it. I have thousands of people on my podcast, and I'm talking the same thing. Why are there not thousands and tens of thousands of people doing this? You know what? Real estate has the best product, but the worst marketing. <laughs> That's what I would say. And it's really people that are tuned into shows like this that can do it. I mean, if you look at popular big media outlets, basically Wall Street pays them to go promote you know, their products, their mainstream investment vehicles, and so on. So it's really a difference of marketing and education. And a lot of people just don't get much of a financial education. So when you don't get much education and you're being marketed to those other things, it's harder to find the things that really make a difference in your life. So you're, you're speaking on maybe there's a barrier to entry into real estate because there's just not enough awareness. So where do people go, I guess, to, to kind of find this stuff out? You know, how, do, how do they get tuned into the right education? Well, by listening to shows like this and actually seeking out the truth. Well, you bring up a good point, though, Garrett, because illiquidity is one of the hindrances of people getting into real estate. It can be a little bit messy on the buy. You need to make an offer to a seller after you've searched for a property, and then there's some negotiation, and there's an inspection, and an appraisal, and mortgage loan documentation. And some people just aren't willing to make the effort. But like most people, if you take the easy route in life, you really don't get that much out of it. The easy route in life talking about the marketing component on how real estate has poor marketing and mutual fund companies have good ones, is you don't need to do anything as an employee today. It became automatic enrollment with 401k plans for employees more than a decade ago for an awful lot of them. If you don't do anything at all, then you're not going to get into real estate investing. You know, this is, and this maybe leads to the next question, but I'm wondering, Keith, when you got, you did, you got into your fourplex, your house hacked, and you maybe bought another or whatever. Why in the heck in 2014 did you start a podcast? Because I was talking about things that I'm talking about you with at work. And I just worked a regular day job at the state of Alaska Department of Transportation. And I had a lot of people eventually coming in and hanging out in my office talking about things like this. And yeah. This is really maybe an epiphany for you if you're a new real estate investor, but shortly after I began real estate investing and I'm still going to my day job, I start to realize, oh, my employees don't have all these residual income streams like I was building, starting out with that fourplex building. And pretty soon your employees are like, 
Now, Keith, how are you and your wife going to Hawaii again? Or, oh, you're going to Italy? Or, you know, so you, you start to get those sort of, of things. And then people ask, well, how are you doing this? And then they ask about the real estate. But still, most of them don't get involved. They're like, oh, that's just interesting to hear about. But I knew some wanted to hear about it. And more people could hear me if I started saying it through the microphone. What, do you, what is your mission at Get Rich Education? It's financial freedom through real estate, but it's doing it with an abundance mentality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what does that really mean? Or what are some of those principles then really? You can live better and give better. Delayed gratification is something that's overrated, for example. Delayed gratification, that is so highly touted as a desirable thing, but some people get delayed gratification ingrained inside them so much that they mm. sacrifice so much lifestyle that it just becomes a habit to delay gratification. And once you live a subpar quality of life, you're just never going to get that time back. Yeah, I mean, you, you're the, you see this, this fire form of investing, right? And I've talked to some people who use that, that fire method where oh, right. they basically, they live under a bridge for 10 years and then they have enough money to live off of. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what a nightmare. You know, what a nightmare. And, and I, I kind of hear what you're saying. But on the other hand, you can't go out and, and live a, a, above your means uh, necessarily and then actually move forward, right? There's, there has to be a balance between living on a bridge and, you know, buying boats all the time, you know, spending <laughs> more than you have. But I think, I think what you're saying is correct. I mean, who, who wants to necessarily live below your means? All, I mean, what kind of life is that really? And I understand the fact that there's discipline involved, but, but you, know, you can reduce the expenses on the one hand, but you can also increase the income on the other hand, and the result is the same, theoretically, right? And, and what I love about that mindset is that it opens up the idea of raising money from others. Now, it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, and you talked about using other people's money. Other people's money is very broad. You brought up and using tenants' money to pay down the debt. You use using a loan to finance something. Sometimes you can raise money from a partner or other investors. And that is very, very powerful because what we do as entrepreneurs is we create something out of nothing. And, and that's what I love about being an entrepreneur. We do it all the time. It all comes from right here, from our ideas. And we use other people's resources. And I think for real estate in particular, I mean, try raising money for you know, anything else, you know, a nightclub or any kind of software business. It's, it's, it's much harder. Real estate is, is so easy to raise money for, especially single family houses, because everybody understands that. But I just love that, that shift in mindset. You talk about the abundant mindset, and it's so applicable to real estate. It's so easy to implement in real estate. Yeah, there is a relative ease. And just consider this. It took Tesla, a well-respected company that took a ton of entrepreneurial ambition and innovation and failure. It took Tesla 17 years until they started to make a profit. Did you realize that from 2003 to 2020, it took them that long to make a profit. You, as a real estate investor, without any formal education, without having to burn a bridge and leave your job and do something entrepreneurial, you can start being profitable in just one month when you buy right. It took Tesla 17 years. Mm. So part of it also is, and I think you touched on this well, Keith, but it's, I, I heard this that, uh, you know, you can either play now and, and work later or uh, work now and play later, right? And so part of it is there is a, a somewhat, and we're talking about you know reducing expenses and and living beneath your means, but there is some sacrifice in the beginning, whether it's getting educated, whether it, you know you have to allot the time 
to get yourself up into into something like this and and patience with it too. Yes, you can do that one deal that that sets you up. You're going to have to learn the steps in some fashion before. So you, there is a bit of sacrifice that goes into to anything that you want. And so I think, um, you know, there's just something, something to be said around that too. Yes. Uh, and that's why I say delayed gratification is overrated, but I don't say delayed gratification oh. is a waste. In fact, I think some delayed gratification is almost vital in the beginning, just like when I made that first ever home, my fourplex, rather than living in a single family home where I would have had more privacy and live better. But delayed gratification is just not a mantra there, for right? life. So you had the fourplex, so your sacrifice was, I got to live next to three people, yeah. but the trade-off was you learned this incredible skill. You got you got your expenses paid for, uh, essentially, or at least your mortgage paid for by the other re- other tenants. You probably put some cash in your pocket at the time. And so that sacrifice was worth it for the long game, which which is what you were playing at the time. And I think I think this whole uh, you know setup that you have with the, the education is setting people up for the long play. Would you say that's accurate, Keith? You got to think like a long-term investor. If you plan to be alive for the long-term, which I sure hope you do, then you ought to invest for the long-term as well. And part of the delayed gratification, and just the biggest thing, and this is so simple, is that your 401k, it just doesn't pay you anything. It's not designed to pay you a thing until you're between age 59 and a half and 70 and a half. And you must begin paying taxes on it on that time. So the 401k plan or its variations, 403b, 457 plan, IRAs, they aren't designed to give you the life that you want until you're older. So I I just can't believe that people would set up their life that way. When you invest in real estate, you ought to have more appreciation over time because you're using leverage and you're getting that income stream. It should pay you well as you own it. You're enjoying it as you go through it. So it's not, you know, you're, you're seeing the benefits sooner than the 401k, just set and forget it. Next thing you know, you're 65 and you, now, now you can retire and enjoy it, right? Yeah. yeah. Versus, it, versus here, you get the benefit earlier and you start, you start that process. You're playing a different long game. This is why 401ks, though they're called tax deferral plans, what they really are, Garrett, is life deferral plans. In fact, <laughs> I interviewed the guy that invented the 401k. I mean, the actual person that invented the 401k, his name is Ted wow. Benna, B-E-N-N-A. I had him on the Get Rich Education podcast with me. He conceded that 401ks are just not working for people the way that they were intended to. And Ted Benna himself today is a passionate real estate investor. This is the actual man that invented the plan um, in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, I love that because you talk, you talk about, you know, there's, there's not enough marketing for this and the 401k has been marketed like crazy, just like investing in the stock market and the other nonsense. And that's like 99.9% of the marketing. So Keith, you and I have some work to do on the marketing side, but you <laughs> talked about your mission is financial freedom of real estate, which by the way is our mission as well. I'm, I'm curious, what kind of strategy do you, that you, you know, that you advise people to achieve financial freedom? Like what's your favorite real estate strategy? Oh, gosh, there really are so many of them. But I would say, you know, we talk about properties. If you want to talk about it from that way, we should talk about properties in a bigger perspective soon because a property is only the fourth most important thing in real estate investing. What? Yeah, the property is only the fourth most important thing. Most people think about the property, but there are actually three things more important. But when we talk about which one's make the best buy and hold investments for properties, I like residential ones. But 
it sounds like you want to know more about why the property is only the fourth most important thing, and that's really the, yeah. the paradigm to think of. Like that's the yeah, yeah, sure. Because if I'm, it. yeah, I want to get I want to get started with real estate. So of course I'm thinking of property, but it sounds like there's something else. Yeah, you know something, um, Michael and Garrett, that I have to tell people when they begin to get interested in real estate investing, and this stops them in their tracks. I need to say stop looking at property, and they will say to me, "Well, Keith, I want a property." But no, you actually have to stop looking at property. And the, my point is, is you're looking too soon. You know, about, I would say, eight out of 10 real estate investors have a terrible experience with real estate investing, and they never invest with real estate again. And then they tell people about all the problems they had with late paying tenants or tenants that tried to hide dogs on them or whatever. And, and you know what that person's problem is? They started with the property. They got passionate about a property. How do most people buy real estate? not very strategically. A commuter to work might drive both ways to work past the blue duplex. And they think the duplex always looks nice and it has good landscaping and nice painting. And they see a for sale sign on that duplex. And they think, well, I heard real estate investing has created a lot of wealth. Why don't I buy this property? And then I can manage it myself because I go past it both ways. That might work maybe two times out of 10, but I think you're setting yourself up for a big failure. Why? Because you started with the property. Here's the way to think about real estate investing from the high end. First, you need to think about what you want real estate to do for you. Second, what market are you buying in? The third most important thing is that team of professionals that you're surrounding yourself with. And then and only then, after you have those first three set up, do you want to be concerned about buying a property? So we look at the most important thing in real estate investing, you, you need to ask yourself, what outcome do you want? Maybe you think that you're in this for the income, but you're actually in this for the outcome. Do you want real estate to give you appreciation or tax incentives or cash flow or lifestyle investing? What do you want real estate to do for you? That's the most important thing. Once you're clear on that, now you want to look at the market. You need to be buying your property inside a vibrant market that has prospects for job growth. Because when you buy your rental property, 18 months later, a tenant might move out. You need a reasonable expectation that you're in a job growth market with vibrant enough economic sectors where another rent paying tenant could come in and pay the rent. And then the third most important thing is that team of professionals. You know, we talk about return on investment, but what's your return on life? Are you going to have a good property manager that can manage this for you? Or if you want to self-manage in the beginning down the road, is there a good manager in that market that can do things like fix faucet leaks or fix flooring when it delaminates? So you got to think about your return on life with this eventually, because you don't really want to be managing tenants. You know, they call the discipline property management, but it really ought to be called tenant management because that's where all the problems come in. But after you figured out what you want, secondly, the market, thirdly, the team, and then fourthly, and only fourthly, are you going to go look at a property? And you know what? A lot of people get this backwards. First, they go and kind of rush to buy a property. And then they try to figure out the market that they just bought in. And then they'll go try to figure out if there's a good property manager in that market. And they have just really set themselves up for failure. So therefore, that is why the property is only the fourth most important thing. The top three things are you, the market, and the team. So you're telling me people just go, a lot of people out there just probably drive, they drive properties, looking at them. It's, it, they're just like, man, I got to figure out how to buy this thing. They're not doing their homework before they get into that, that kind of a scenario. And so then they set themselves up for failure. 
Is that is that a good recap on what you just? That's a good up? recap, and and you know I got lucky when I bought that fourplex building in Midtown Anchorage, Alaska. When I started out, I never thought about oh the the larger market forces or you know the economy was growing year over year in Anchorage at that time, but I didn't realize it. I wasn't aware of that. I didn't even know to think about the fact that that's more important than the property because your property is just there to secure an income stream that the market delivers to you. And the number one point was, again, clarity. It just keeps coming up clarity. You got to be clear what you want. Because I know when I started flipping houses, I thought I wanted to be a real estate investor, right? And But I didn't understand that being a real estate and a house flipper actually does not, there's no financial freedom as a house flipper. Right. I mean, unless you go to a very large scale and you, you possibly build a construction company in the process. I didn't understand that. So I was, I was like, I wasn't clear on what I wanted. I thought I wanted to be a real estate investor, but no, I really actually wanted a passive income, which is, if you think about it, makes might makes no sense at all. It's really some kind of buy and hold cash flow strategy. Uh, but that, you know, brings up another question. You know, there's so many so many things right now about this long term outlook for real estate, and a lot of people are a lot of people aren't doing anything right now because they're so scared of what's going to happen. You know, I mean, what is your you know, I mean, are the long-term housing plans and, and the trends and all that stuff's going on? I mean, is that really still valid? I mean, is, real, is that real estate still a good thing? Or are you maybe changing your mind about maybe doing some other investment? That's a great question. I think you're bringing up the fact that with eviction moratoria and forbearance options for homeowners in this increasingly government-supported economy that we're in to try to help pave over this recession, is real estate still the place to be? I, I think you're asking about long-term trends, and I sure can address that in a moment. Long-term trends are better than short-term trends, but short-term trends really aren't that bad. Even in the face of eviction moratoria, you guys know you invest in apartment buildings, and I myself invest in both apartment buildings and single-family homes. It's not that easy for the tenant to avoid paying rent, at least here on the national basis. And you still need to check for state and local conditions on eviction moratoria and forbearance. But nationally, generally, you can only stay at your place and not be evicted if you're a non-paying tenant, if you can prove specifically that you lost your job due to pandemic-related conditions. And you have to document that and certify that. So what some landlords are doing is if the tenant can't pay the rent and it has nothing to do with the pandemic and the landlord just feels like they're being taken advantage of, well, then the landlord can go and do things and say, well, hey, here in your lease agreement, you're not supposed to have a visitor for more than three days. I know your brother's been staying with you for 10 days. So, you know, here's your notice, you're gone, or you've got barking dogs, or there are so many other reasons why you don't have to accept a tenant that is not paying. And and that's we're actually dealing with the same thing, where you know it's not it's not like this is like affecting every single person all of a sudden isn't paying, uh, and, or or a good majority of them, and then you got to deal with this because there there is like you just mentioned a process that they have they have to meet the certain criteria to even qualify, and if they don't qualify, then you know then they can go through a process. So even uh, and so and so right now, you know one thing that we're doing is we're we're getting people out on our, on our own, you know, we're cutting some, we're cutting deals with them, whatever, but it's not really that, not as crazy as you would think. Cause we, we have large properties or we have, you know, 200 tenants in there and only a small portion of them are actually delinquent to that degree and affected by the pandemic. And then we have, you know, process to offset that situation as well. So it's really the exposure I think is in, in people's minds might be a lot bigger than what it actually exists at least for the time being. Yeah, yeah, I still see rent collections of 90 plus, 90% uh, plus in my yeah. properties, 95% plus. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the same thing. And I think it's just forcing us to, to communicate more with our tenants. We probably should have done that beforehand. So it's actually it's actually a good thing, but it's surprising our collections are equal to or just even higher than they were before. And that's somewhat surprising. I think people really, they want some sign of security, right? And the one thing they can control is their housing. And if they just pay their rent or their mortgage, they won't lose their house. They can lose their health and they can lose their, their job and whatever. Uh, they can't go to the restaurant anymore, but daggone it, you know, I still have my four walls. And I think that's that's my theory of why people are choosing to pay pay the rent. Well, yeah. And uh, you bring up a good point. And some people are not thinking about this, but some people are concerned about catching the virus. So they don't want to be evicted because they don't know what kind of public situation or what yeah. proximity to other people that would put them in. So they want to pay the rent. They have more incentive to pay their rent because they want to stay inside. They want to quarantine at home and they don't want to risk getting it. So there's that side of it as well. That's just one other reason why collections are greater than what a lot of people expected and feared. Now, a lot of us are getting used to these uh, government subsidies. There's great. It's fantastic. We get all these checks in the mail. We get all these unemployment benefits. You know, everything's basically going to be free, free college, free housing. It's kind of a nice thing to do. What people don't realize, though, is that we're kind of making all this money up out of thin air. And so, you know, and I know you, you know, you, you watch the, the greater economy and the trends and what people are talking about. A lot of people are talking about the, the real danger of inflation. You know, some inflation, we've had an average of 2.2% over the last, whatever, 20 years. Basically, we call that growth. But the problem is when we start printing so much money and our debt is accelerating, there's a real, uh, real danger on, on inflation. Do you agree there's a danger of inflation? Uh, and if so, how, how might that affect real estate? No, there's not a near-term danger of significant inflation, which is kind of too bad. I wish there were because inflation benefits real estate investors three ways at the same time. But, but before I get into that, to drop back to our point about the, the long-term trend portion for housing and demographics being good for real estate investors, you know, we discussed the short-term a little bit, but we think about is the long-term good for real estate investors? Is this something you want to be in during the long game? Let's just look look at the macro. Currently, per Freddie Mac, the United States is two and a half million housing units undersupplied. So demand exceeds supply. That's why in this recession, housing's in great shape. 12 years ago in that recession, housing was oversupplied. So this is just macroeconomics one-on-one of supply versus demand. Home builders are trying to catch up and meet that gap. So we're about two and a half million housing units short. But we have a couple forces that are acting on that, which I would call shadow supply and also shadow demand, future hidden supply and demand that might be coming onto the market. And generally, this portends really well for real estate investors since there is this dearth of supply. The expiration of foreclosure moratoria, some people might not be able to make their housing payments when those moratoria expire. I know Joe Biden says he wants to extend those, but they've got to run out at some time. Well, if people end up defaulting on their homes then and cannot get caught up on their payments, they could lose them. However, a lot of those moratoria plans just let that homeowner defer their payments till down the road, which is actually of benefit to them. So that's some of the shadow supply that could be coming on the market, eating into that shortage of two and a half million. I don't expect it to be that much of the two and a half million for a couple of reasons. Like I mentioned, there is a substantial amount of shadow demand, this pent up demand for demand to come onto the market for this limited supply. In fact, a really interesting stat, fellas, the Pew Research Center 
shows us that 52% of young people now live with at least one parent. 52% of 18 to 29-year-olds, that's the highest proportion in modern record, even since before the 1930s Great Depression, with all these young people moving at home. So, so why do I bring this up as a shadow demand sort of thing? Well, they don't want to be living with your parents. You don't want to play, be playing video games at home with your parents when you're 33. So as soon as the economy returns and those people get employed again, that gives us the potential for more household formation is what we're talking about here. So that's some of the shadow demand component. And then there's something that's so obvious that a lot of people overlook where the future housing demand is coming from. In the United States, it's population growth. And you might be thinking, well, of course, the United States always has population growth. You know that the pond that you grew up catching bullfrogs in is oftentimes now filled in with a housing development there or the field where you shot clay pigeons. It's now housing. That's because our population is constantly growing. And you just take this for granted, but in places like Japan, the population is declining. A few nations in Western Europe, the population is now declining. Russia has zero population growth. So population growth just increases the demand. And some people think with the new and the incoming presidential administration, that is also going to open up more immigration than what we saw in the previous administration. And whether you're philosophically or, or politically opposed to or against more immigration, it doesn't matter. If you're a real estate investor, it just is. That's even more housing demand that's coming online. So future trends are really good for real estate investors long-term. Millennials, depending on the demography you look at, they're about age 25 to 40. They are of prime renter age. And at 80 million people, they're the largest generation. So we've kind of got these baked in demographics that are really going to portend well for longer-term housing demand. And, and then there's the inflation component too, which I can speak to. So Keith, I know you don't have a crystal ball here, but... You're talking, this is really interesting. This makes a lot of sense, the, the shadow supply and demand. When do you think we're going to start seeing this? What, it, what in your, you know, just a guess, how long, what does the timeline look like for this kind of stuff? And again, I know you don't, you don't really know and nobody really knows, but what, what do you think on that? Yeah, it's really hard to say. A lot of it has to do with when the economy picks up again. That's when this younger set of people are going to get confident and are going to go out and get jobs mm. again and not live with their parents any longer. So really, a lot of it has to do with this millennial generation. And now a lot of them are at home with the parents. And if you think about what happened in the pandemic, it makes a lot of sense because people in that 18 to 29-year-old age group they were the ones more likely to work in hospitality jobs and work at a restaurant. So it would make sense that they would be laid off and that they will be back out as part of the workforce again, forming new households when it ends. And we also can't really get much inflation until the economy picks up because we're in a low demand environment with all these businesses being closed. Yeah, I mean, I know you're saying short term, you're not really concerned about inflation. I'm a little more concerned about inflation in the medium, uh, certainly in the long term, just because the way the trends are, are going right now, we just need we need economic growth to kind of curtail inflation. And I, I don't know, with all this money printing going on in our debt, uh, I'm very concerned about that. But you're not you're not concerned as, as concerned, which doesn't matter because you were just about to say that inflation and real estate go hand yeah. to hand. And inf you actually would like some inflation, though. <laughs> Why would inflation be good for real estate? Isn't that crazy? I'm like an inflation cheerleader. I'm like, go, go, go. I want there to be more inflation. And if that sounds counterintuitive to you, the listener, the viewer here, I, I think you're going to understand really soon because to the consumer... 
your experience with inflation is, oh, I seem to remember my Chipotle burrito cost $8 last year and it cost $9 this year. You know, it's something like that. And there is a difference between consumer inflation, which is relatively low right now. And that's what I think we're talking about. And asset price inflation, how you've seen the inflation in the values of real estate and stocks and crypto and so on lately. But just thinking with consumer price inflation, and I like to talk about where we're at now. 1.4% is the current annual rate of inflation. That's per the Bureau of Labor Statistics. You can always check that figure, by the way, at bls.gov slash CPI for the consumer price index. A lot of people believe that that number is understated and that it's really higher than 1.4% inflation. But what we're talking about here is that diminished purchasing power of the dollar. So inflation debases what savers have saved, but it enriches debtors. And the reason for that is really three different reasons real estate investors benefit from inflation. It's something that I have called and I guess coined the inflation triple crown. If you just Google inflation triple crown, my video that shows this will come up. But when you're a real estate investor that has long-term fixed interest rate debt, you benefit from inflation three ways at the same time. The first way is price inflation. The second way is with debt debasement. And the third way is with cash flow enhancement. All right, so what is all this? Well, the first one with price inflation, let's say you own a $1 million apartment building. And then over time, whether that takes one year, three years, whatever, over time, there's 10% cumulative inflation. All right, so your $1 million apartment building goes up to $1.1 million. And you're thinking, well, how am I better ahead? Okay, because the building is now priced in 10% more dollars but each dollar is worth 10% less. So aren't I just right back where I started? No, the answer is actually no, because remember, I talked about how you have a loan on this property. You might have an 800K loan on the property. That means you have 200K in equity. So if you have 200K in equity, and this property's dollar denominated price just went up 100K, your 200K in equity now went up to 300K. That's a 50% return on your equity, even though the building only inflated 10% because you're leveraged. Now, some might say, well, now how did that happen? Or tell me more about part of this. Well, let's talk more about that 800K in debt because some people are like, oh, well, what about the debt on the building? No, your debt's completely outsourced to tenants as long as you bought a cash flowing property. So don't be concerned with the debt. You've outsourced that. The second way this debt, this 800K in debt is good is that with 10% inflation over time, this 800K loan, you don't owe the bank back rather 800K in inflation adjusted dollars. Inflation just debased your debt. So with an 800K debt level and 10% inflation, you only owe the bank back 720K in inflation adjusted dollars. Because over time with that 10% inflation, wages are up and prices are up and so on. This is really a hidden benefit. So that's the second of three ways in the triple crown that real estate investors benefit. It's with what I call debt debasement. And then the third way is with cash flow enhancement. If you have, say, $200 cash flow on a $1,000 rental property and with 10% inflation, okay, you can bump your rent from $1,000 up to $1,100 then. But wait, your cash flow, your bottom line number, $200, that just went up to close to $300. That went up almost $100 as well because your principal and interest are fixed. You're still going to have some things that tend to rise with inflation like 
property taxes and property insurance and so on, but you have cash flow enhancement. So that's the inflation triple crown, price inflation, debt debasement, and cash flow enhancement. So I actually want more inflation. So the next time I'm at Chipotle, I, I want to see my burrito cost more, maybe as long as that's indicative of the fact that there is inflation in the marketplace. It's a good thing this for is, us. This is great, Keith. I love the way you just explained that. So I, that's, that's fantastic. It's, it, it just proves yet another way why real estate is so good all around, how it performs in, in recessions and inflation. I just love it so much. Hey, Keith, thank you so much for, for being on the show. How can people connect with you, can find you? They can find me at getricheducation.com. Right now, I have our free short ebook over there. It's called Seven Money Myths That Are Killing Your Wealth Potential. Uh, one myth is that compound interest will make you wealthy. Another myth is that the return from home equity has an actual rate of return, but it doesn't. Again, you can get that at getricheducation.com or listen to me at the Get Rich Education podcast. There's a good chance you're already listening. It's how to simply and actionably build real estate wealth. And without being a landlord or without being a flipper, like you brought up before, Michael, I mean, being a flipper might be okay, but that is a, a job when the day's done. And on the Get Rich Education podcast, we do have all the guests you've heard of, like Robert Kiyosaki has been there multiple times since I was a writer for the Risk Dad Advisors, Grant Cardone, Jim Rogers, Jim Rickards. They're all over there at the Get Rich Education podcast and GetRichEducation.com. Hey, uh, Keith, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, fellas. I love it. And that was Keith Weinhold with Get Rich Education, just a fountain of all kinds of experience and wisdom. So, man, I love this. What were some of your key uh, takeaways, uh, Garrett? So I, I really liked the inflation triple crown. That, I know, right? That was so cool. That was that was pretty cool. He coined that, and uh, I couldn't couldn't agree more with with that statement. That because there's always you're always wondering, you're like, huh? If inflation goes up, where should I put my money at that point? Because obviously it's getting less valuable. And the answer is real estate. And he just he had the data to kind of go behind it, or at least the process behind why that is, which is which I thought was super cool. Yeah, I mean, normally you talk about gold being the the inflation hedge, right? So as as a dollar goes down or inflation goes up, gold goes up. But the problem with gold is, you know, it doesn't produce any kind of cash flow. There's no inherent tax benefits, and of course, with real estate, we have all that. So I love that. It's like, oh my gosh, I, and it doesn't really matter. Like whether Keith and I agreed on whether inflation are coming, we're both right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, and and I, you know, another thing uh, I think that he mentioned that I, I thought was super interesting was this, this shadow supply and demand. Mm. And I've never heard it put that quite that way. And I think it makes a lot of sense because you have, you know, mortgage defaults on homes that are maybe approaching and people are, people are going to, you know, be getting out of their homes and their mortgages potentially. And so you have this supply that's coming on the market that no one can really see yet. And it's kind of being held off by the government, man, what a, what a cool way to put it with that kind of uh, language for sure. Yeah, and I just love how he talks about mindset a lot. And that's probably because he grew up in the Rich Dad organization where mindset is so important. And it is important. And clarity is important. And getting out of your way is important. And I just want to tell you, if you guys you know, feel stuck a little bit right, right now and, and you guys value mentorship and you want to work with someone who will get you unstuck, then consider our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You can actually schedule a call with one of our advisors and see if mentoring is right for you. But I speak to everyone that comes on in the uh, early on. And one of the 
the reasons they say they came on was because they want to commit to it. They've been doing this for some time. They never really got any kind of traction. And this is why they finally signed, signed up and committed to that because now you have a full-time syndicator working for you, kicking your butt if necessary, and kind of getting your mind unstuck, holding you accountable. So if that's if that's something that you want to consider, check it out, themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. All right, Gary, that's it, man. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.